0: move fast and fix things resolve errors and minutes and deploy with confidence head to rollbar.com slash changelog request a demo get started today it's loved by developers trusted by enterprises and most of all we use it here at changelog move fast and fix things with rollbar once again rollbar.com slash changelog
1: Welcome to JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. If you're not following at JSParty FM on Twitter, you're missing out on notifications for the live show, clips and highlights from past episodes, links and repos from around the community, and much more. Follow us, you won't regret it. Okay, here's K-Ball at JamstackConf with Brian LaRue. You're gonna like this one. Party time, y'all.
0: Okay, hello, K-Ball here reporting live from Jamstack Conf SF. I'm here with Brian LaRue, CTO and co-founder of Begin.com. Brian, how are you doing? I'm great, how are you? doing good. Pumped up on coffee, as is my want nice. <laughs> these days. Nice. Nice. Um, so, Brian, you're speaking tomorrow, is that right? Yeah. Tomorrow, I'm going to be talking
2: about uh, progressive bundling.
0: Progressive bundling. Ooh, I'm excited to dig
2: in. Can you tell us more? Yeah, I completely made that word up, so uh, no one's probably heard of it before. When we were building uh, one of the initial versions of Begin.com, we really wanted to get past the build step. We, you know, we hear about how uh, builds are blazing fast, but usually that's measured in minutes, and that's not great iteration speed. Browsers recently shipped uh, ES modules, and uh, there's ubiquitous support now, so they were always promised to be this faster way of building things, and we thought, well, can we, can we just build our front end using straight up ES modules with no build step? And uh, not to spoil my talk, the answer is no. <laughs> but you can get really far. And, and you don't have to trade this off and you don't need Webpack. Um, the trick that we ended up uh, arriving on was using a, a roll up in the background with a Lambda function to build it once and then uh, cache it in the CDN and leave it there so it's not a user uh, intervention thing, it's more of an automated process. Okay, so what happens the first time it's requested? So first time you request it, your markup's gonna have clean, beautiful, normal HTML, not generated goods or anything like that. So you'll say source script equals the JavaScript name that you want, type equals module. We'll request that path, but that path will actually hit a Lambda function. And that Lambda function will go, oh, they need this module, do I have it in my cache? Cool, I do, 302 redirect to that cache. If I don't have it in my cache, I'll run roll-up once, leave it in the cache, and then 302 redirect to that, that module. Interesting. How,
0: how fast is that rollup build then?
2: So it's been pretty fast for us. We're rather lean on our module selection. I don't think this is going to be something everybody can, can suffer uh, dynamically today. And 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 again, you know, you don't have to do this a, across the board. This could be just something you do for some modules. Our entry files typically take around nine hundred milliseconds the first hit. They're still sub second, and and we're dealing with around eighty modules. So this is pretty quick, um, sub second, and then obviously subsequent quests are you know are essentially 10 free, right? Yeah. yeah, because they're
0: CDN. Okay, yeah. interesting. So you are. Essentially, doing request time bundling for the first request, yep. and then everything else is cached, and it's just the same as if you built it statically ahead.
2: Yeah, so it's only one hit. Um, this, you know, I, what I like about this is it keeps your markup clean. So your markup is is just referencing files that conceptually, logically, you have on your file system. Um, but the 302 redirects, doing all the caching smarts for you, and so all the the ugly guids and stuff are are hidden away. What I don't like about this is that you know performance penalty. And we're rolling our own caching logic. So, you know, the old joke in computer science is that the yes. hardest problem in computer science is caching yep. validation off by one errors. Yes. Um,
0: and naming things. Yes, right. and
2: naming things. So three problems in computer science or two problems in computer science. But, but you already named it, progressive bundling. Yeah. Right, so, so
0: you got that one out. Now you're just down to caching.
2: So it made sense and we think that this is uh, something that gets better with time. So right now roll-ups, you know, running with like some some speed penalty because it's gotta look up that graph locally and do all this hard work of caching. Uh, The Lambda functions aren't getting slower. And uh, (laughs) AWS isn't getting smaller. The scale's growing. Well, I imagine as time comes along, we'll be able to do this and and have zero penalty. Interesting. Um, Okay, so now now you've got
0: me thinking. So how does this interact with, for example, um, like module splitting and having a bunch of, like per-component modules and things like that? Like, do you end up having sort of request trees or is it able to fetch it all at once or like how does
2: that work? No, totally. We, we build out our own entry files on a per page basis and then we progressively enhance those pages. That's how we've built begin.com but that's not going to be tenable for everybody. There's there's different ways of going about this. Some people like using uh, syntax as their code splitting points and so you know if you use the new um, async imports, uh, Webpack's smart enough to know where to do all that splitting. Uh, this technique isn't that smart, you know, mm-hmm. you have to effectively, the code splitting is a manual process where you figure out where you want those splits to happen and then treat those as entry files. And and this also doesn't uh, solve the problem that a lot of these bundlers solve really well, and that's legacy support. So, you know, if you are um, targeting IE8, I'm so sorry for you, um, but you're going to have to stick with that webpack for a little bit longer. Interesting. Um So does it only work then
0: with things that are supporting entirely ESX modules? Yes,
2: which is all the major evergreen browsers, and so that's something you know a line in the sand that we can draw. Yeah, maybe the enterprise can't though. You know, you might be stuck on IE six in a VM for some reason. But
0: also on the on the bundle side, right? Because one of the th- we've had a conversation related to this before, talking about okay, how do we get everybody upgrading to using ES six modules? And one of the challenges is there's what a million packages and and on npm right now that different things are referencing, and yeah. some of them are. Essentially stranded, not going to update anytime soon. Totally, um, is this able to
2: consume
0: modules that don't use ES6?
2: Yeah, in theory, uh, you could do this with Rollup. We're just writing ES6 modules for our client-side JavaScript. I'm really hoping Node um, gets their ES module support up uh, sooner. It's a shame that TC39 didn't pave that cow path, and you know we're, we're here today, so there's no point in reliving the past. It, if only the million existing modules have been taken into consideration, but um, it 's a problem uh, we're using preact actually largely because they do nice um, es6 uh, or ESM builds for us mm-hmm. and so you mm-hmm. have to curate uh, your choices or you end up uh, retranspiling back to from commonjs to es modules which you know, adds build time and and creates overhead and creates obfuscation also. Like, you you look at the result of a a built webpack app and good luck debugging that.
0: Yeah, so, okay. So you're still, in some essence, using a build step. You're not, but you're just doing it in a deferred manner. So what are all of the benefits that you end up seeing from this? Like, if you were to spell them out.
2: We're not thinking about um, how this build works, so the build uh, script that we wrote, I think, is clocking in at like a rough 80 lines of code, um, which I thought would you know, probably change and modify a lot, but we've been with it for almost a year now and very happy. As we add new modules, we just add them. Um, when we're debugging, we can add a flag, and I'll, I'll show this in my talk, um, where we'll allow the waterfall to happen. So even in production, we can say, all right, we don't want the, the fingerprinted file 302 redirect all the way to the original source files. And then when we do that, we set no cache headers just to make sure that we, you know, don't bite ourselves in the foot. And uh, it works great because we're we're debugging the real source. There's no source maps. There's no um, right. there's no translation step. We're just writing the code that we that we expect to write. And we see we see what we expect to see. Interesting.
0: And then in development, you're probably
2: doing that as well. Everything's just built on request. Yeah, it just uh, it just works the way you would expect it to work and instead of uh, having this kind of moment where your source code transformation becomes a problem that you have to solve in your head, where you're like, okay, how is this going to build and where is this going to build? No more thinking about that. We're just throwing files up. That's pretty cool. So
0: is this, you mentioned this is something you built yourself for begin. Is this open source? Is it something people can play
2: with? Yeah, I extracted it just today and I'll be open sourcing it with my slides. It's not it's actually not a lot of code. It's one lambda function, like I said, and it's really quite short. Um, it doesn't do a whole lot. It only relies on vanilla roll-up right now. If you wanted to add more things like code mods or Babel or whatever, you 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 could. You would slow it down in that process. But um, yeah, it's just one lambda. You could run that anywhere lambdas run. Which is mostly uh, AWS, but you know Netlify has an answer for that too. And yeah, it works. That's interesting. I'm of course because I'm I'm in the, sort of this Jamstack world these
0: days where I'm thinking about precompiling everything, and I'm like, okay, well, there's the benefit of you can cut through, but maybe when you push it out, you automatically hit all those things just to pre-generate the cache anyway. But then you're back to a build
2: step. <laughs> they are, but it. And, and maybe that's okay. And, and I think we're always gonna have one because of this caching thing. So uh, when we were doing this initially, we didn't, um, we didn't have any build stuff. We just had a lot of modules. We're like, okay, this works. But we started to feel the waterfall. You know, you'd have a module that downloads a module that downloads a module. So we solved that by moving all of our manifests up to the top. We do all of our imports in one file. HTTP2 would do what it's supposed to do, and it would download all the modules in parallel, and then the graph would resolve uh, a lot faster. That worked, but all the devs had to know and remember to put things back at that top level, and one bad waterfall ruined the whole dev experience. Worse, um, you can't control proxy caching. So you know, if, if you use a CDN, these things will cache stuff forever. And yep. if you name your file something benign like shoppingcart.js, that might be the only file they ever get for the rest of their life in that browser. And if you need to make a change to shoppingcart.js, uh, that user might never see it. So you have to fingerprint these files and make sure they have a unique fingerprint, usually a SHA. And you get this for free with Webpack and Vue and all these other ecosystem tools. Uh, we ended up having to add that ourselves when we did our bundle step with Rollup. Um, turns out it's pretty trivial, but it's just one one of those other things that we had to think about and and uh, get bit by to really appreciate what you get out of that build step. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I may be dating myself, but I definitely remember like having. Uh, things that I thought were going to be static forever and I didn't worry about fingerprinting and then having to go and rewrite everywhere that loaded them to add a query (laughs) parameter to something so
2: that I've busted caches everywhere. uh. Different operating systems and different users. We found out from a user in Boston so they must have had a proxy at their ISP level or something and it was was a painful day. Um, That said, adding all this stuff back wasn't too bad either and and it, it built my appreciation for why we do these build steps. (laughs) 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 Yeah, for sure.
0: Um, so I want to explore something else that you've worked on. Oh yeah. Um, so we're talking a lot about using Lambda functions and things like that, and I was looking at Architect, yeah. uh, which I think is also you.
2: Is that right? Yeah, That's your, yeah, your yeah. baby um, Or one of them. One, one of one of. Uh, I'm am a maintainer on. I, I'm not not the sole um, individual dictator on that project. One of the drivers of it. It's um, a solution for making uh, AWS a little more tenable. So. Amazon is um, an amazing uh, ecosystem. It's uh, the largest cloud provider by far, and it's not getting smaller, and it's not getting easier to use. And then when you go into that console for the first time, it's extremely intimidating. (laughs) There's services all over the place. I had to write out this uh, document the other day to explain how to set up DNS, and It it involved, like, four services, and there's nothing you can do about that. You need certificates from ACM. You need to put your records in Route 53. You probably have a CDN at CloudFront. And the amount of configuration it takes to set these up is... um, It's a lot. And it's intimidating. And so this is why there's a lot of um, solutions out there to make AWS more tenable. um, And Architect's one of those. So... I was looking at it and at least the marketing for Architect seemed
0: very focused on serverless Jamstack style stuff. Is that an accurate
2: representation? It's for webby stuff um, and you can do Jamstack stuff. Um, I think it's a it's a fair-ish um, way of looking at it. A lot more dynamic though. So we do the wild and crazy thing. We put a a Lambda function at the root apex of our, our website. And that Lambda function serves HTML. I know, it's wild. And and at first, everyone's like, "What? can you do that? And it's like, yeah, you can serve text. You can even serve JSON. Um, and JSON and HTML are both text. Why would you do this? Well, maybe you want to server render stuff. Maybe you want to dynamically render things. And you have to remember, we're putting it behind a CDN. So you're right. not hitting it millions of times. You're hitting it once, and it's getting cached, ideally, forever. Right. So, Architect allows for the Jamstack pattern, uh, but it goes a little bit beyond that, and that you can do anything that you can do with formation. Um, we paved the path for doing uh, DynamoDB, Lambda functions, and, um, and background tasks using SNS and SQS, make that really easy. So, this kind of encompasses the core of what you would need for building a web app. Um, traditionally anyways. You might need a database, uh, you might need background tasks that are long running. Um, if you don't need those things, absolutely don't, you know, don't do that. Um, but when you do hit a certain point of scale or a certain amount of uh, sophistication with your application, you're going to need to do these things. And when you do, uh, going into Amazon seems like a, a pretty big ask. And So Architect just paints over the cloud formation has a high level manifest format. Plain text, you can read and write it, um, and it generates CloudFormation under the hood, which is Amazon's blessed way of generating uh, infrastructure. And so we see build times um, for like a new project. We can get one spin up in just under a minute. Um, that includes a URL. Uh, within 10 minutes, you can have a database and a background task, server rendering the whole the whole enchilada, um, and it's all open source. That is pretty freaking cool
1: linode is our cloud server choice grab the nanode plan for just five dollars a month just five bucks that gets you a gig of ram a blazing fast 25 gig ssd and one terabyte of transfer let's be honest you can go a long ways on that five bucks When you do need to scale up, their prices are predictable, so you can put your calculator down. You won't need it. We've been running changelog.com on Linode for years, and we've always impressed by their award-winning support team. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Once again, that's linode.com slash changelog.
0: I was looking at it. I've been doing a lot of work in Kubernetes recently. And I was oh, yeah. like, holy smokes, this looks a lot simpler.
2: <laughs> yeah, in a way, Architect was a little bit of uh, an allergic reaction to the container thing. I don't uh, want to trash on any technologies. I don't believe in zero sum thinking. I think it all additive. But um, if you have um, a monolith and you're load balancing it, uh, Kubernetes is probably the way to go. If you're starting a greenfield project today, and you want to build it like serverlessly, um, you probably do not need Kubernetes or want to even get near it. And and it's totally okay if, if you're using Kubernetes, it's totally fine if that is something you think you need. Um, but we probably don't need it for most webby use cases anymore. Um, it's more for traditional uh, application server um, type things.
0: Yeah, so maybe you can talk through a little bit, because my head is still very much in it, even as I, I have some projects that are kind of microservice-y, but it's still, I, I'm running a bunch of web servers. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. that is not necessarily the architecture of the future that we're talking about here. So what, what goes into thinking about a modern web architecture from your perspective?
2: Yeah, so the beauty of the function is the primitive lets us uh, step away from that metaphor of a server or a monolith, and so now every route in your application can just be a function that responds to an HTTP request. And it's a little bit weird way of thinking. Um, if you came from the node community, you might be used to the small modules world. And uh, the, the sort of joke I like to say, people will be like, oh, now, now you have all these functions. It's just like all these, these different like, stuff, and it's hard to manage. Uh, but you know, a Rails app has a lot of functions, too. It just doesn't have any isolation between them. And that's, <laughs> that's a key thing to note, because this isolation allows uh, parallelization. So we can deploy functions in parallel. Uh, when you're deploying a monolith, you deploy the whole thing all at once, and if it's a big thing, it might be multiple gigabytes. That means multiple minutes, if not an hour, before you've rolled all your fleet of orchestrated servers. With Lambda functions, um, your deployment time is as long as your largest function, which is usually sub-five megabytes. And if you have hundreds of these, they still all deploy it in parallel, so you get these super fast iteration speeds. Uh, the isolation also just gives you better security, and um, you don't have to think about patching servers or maintaining your runtimes or um, you know canary deploys where you're you're having rolling deploys go across fleets of servers. Uh, once you deploy, you're online and you're ready to go. It's um, it's a whole new model, and I think the the main problem with it is it, it's just so much faster and. Um, you, you tend to start uh, experimenting maybe a little more than you would have in the past. And, it, and you can go crazy and be like, well, you know, it's cheap to replicate this stack, so why don't we try out that experiment over here? And, and uh, you can go a little bit wild with it, but I, I absolutely love it, obviously, I'm gushing right now. Yeah. So
0: uh, if someone is new to that world or new to development in general and doesn't have a strong conception of, of how one would go, where would you point them to start?
2: I think arc.codes is a website, is a good place to go. Uh, that's our that's our open source core, uh, and how we build stuff on AWS. If if Amazon having an Amazon account seems like too much, or AWS seems like too much, um, begin.com um, is our answer to that. And so if you go there and sign up, uh, within 30 seconds we'll have a serverless app deployed on our AWS account and uh, you can eject it anytime. It's just standard cloud formation of the hood, so you can run it on your own Amazon whenever you want. Our hope is that you'll choose to upgrade and you'll stick with us and uh, let us to continue deploying to uh, either ours or your Amazon. Um, but that's probably the easiest way to get started. You know, this, it's a big world, it's a long journey. There's a lot more to the web than just get requests, and there's also POST. <laughs> and other things that you can do and and maybe you know eventually you 'll outgrow uh, just building static sites that want to get into these these uh more hardcore tools so
0: You've been talking a lot about AWS, Mm -hmm. Arc.Code's open source. Does it compile down to other backends like running on Google Cloud or Azure or some of these alternative areas that have cloud functions um, similar like Netlify or I I think Cloudflare has cloud workers and things like that now?
2: Yeah, not yet. And uh, there's not a technical barrier for us to do this per se, but I do think that there are reasons to not pay too much attention to the other clouds, and this is getting massively subjectively personal. I think Azure's got a lot going for it, and I especially think the GitHub um, acquisition was smart. Uh, They're a little bit behind on uh, both infrastructure as code and on um, performance for Azure Functions in particular. And uh, the database story isn't quite there yet. Cosmos is looking good, but it's not quite there. I I don't even think the serverless thing is on the map for Google, honestly. I know they advertise that it is, but uh, their functions offering is not that great and um, they don't really have an infrastructure as code solution. Their solution is use Terraform, best I can tell, which is adding another dependency. So I'm not super excited about the other clouds yet. And now I'm not saying that they're not going to be great eventually, but if I'm going to choose a cloud provider and my solution to lock-in is to not choose Amazon, that's not very smart, because <laughs> the way things are gonna go here is that there's going to be a few, it'll consolidate and there will be a few winners, and we already know who one is. And so Amazon's, <laughs> Amazon's kind of a safer choice. And like, I, so my, my last big gig I worked on was in mobile, and I remember in 2007 when I saw that iPhone for the first time, I was like, oh my God, Blackberry's in trouble. But you know, I think they're gonna be able to pull this off. And, and that was a credible thing to think at that time, as a Canadian especially. Um, but, you know, time was not too kind for BlackBerry's mobile story. I think right now we can say safely that that AWS is the iOS, but we don't know who the BlackBerry is. And so I'm, I'm, I'm playing it safe, I'm de-risking, and I'm doing the boring thing by choosing the market leader. and. Uh, That's my personal subjective view. I'm sure the comments are going to be interesting on this one, but uh, anyone else is competing with Amazon, you're you're risking that they might go away.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I just, I've seen, as people start to see serverless as the future and pushing everything out to the edge, they're saying, oh, we don't actually need all of AWS to compete anymore. That's Right? right. We just need to provide... You know, a few things. That's
2: right, yeah. And and we're ready. I, I agree with that. And and that's how we approached it with both Begin and Arc. And I think Architect supports twelve AWS services of the three hundred and seventy odd that they that they have. And and that's something that Amazon can't do or say. Right? Amazon's never gonna say don't use ninety percent of Amazon. But that's something that that I can say as an individual that I don't need, you know. I don't know, EC2. It's not, not helpful for me anymore. Um, I understand that it exists. I think if it's working for you, that's great. But like if I'm building a website, I'm not spinning up an EC2 instance ever again. And uh, you can do that with any of these things, for sure, subsetting. All right, so we've talked
0: about architect, what it is today. We've talked a little bit about Begin. we talked about this uh, idea of progressive button link. Hmm. What do you think is next on the horizon
2: in this space? Oh, boy. Well, I think data gravity is an interesting thing to talk about and think about. So a lot of people are getting really excited about GraphQL, and rightfully, because it's unlocking uh, databases for the front end. And there really hasn't been a breakout new way to understand or do this. I think Fauna is kind of interesting. I'm personally a huge fan of DynamoDB, but where our data is and being able to get our data fast uh, remains a massively unsolved problem. And and who, who owns that data and, and how do we access it from multiple places? Because it's not just a website probably accessing it. You might need to ad hoc query it um, for the business guy or, or, or whatever. You might need to replicate it. And so... I think the big, new, interesting thing is gonna be how do, we, how do we deal with all these data sources? Where do those data sources live? How do we interact with them? Because there's no clear standards here. Uh, I think everyone can agree we, we don't like trying to scale MySQL shards. <laughs> like, I, I will agree with that, <laughs> and, and I think that's that's where the agreement ends. And so like, <laughs> I, I, after that, it's like you know someone might say GraphQL, someone else might say that's preposterous. I don't need multiple disparate data sources. I just need one. And and I don't know. I don't know that anyone is right or anyone has a real answer for this. And it's a, it's a tough problem.
0: Yeah, that is an interesting. So I think of GraphQL as it's almost a it's an interface layer rather than a storage solution right. in some form. right? Like that's, totally. That's a way of... It's almost an extension of the sort of state management solutions we have in the front end, just taking it a little bit further. Um, but it doesn't solve the where am I putting it problem. In fact, it hides it, right? So yeah. It, yeah.
2: that's, that's
0: <laughs> nice. Okay, we in the front end may not have to care about that. But if you're talking about how, what is the... the uh, you know, web native architecture of the future looks like. We still have to make those decisions. That's GraphQL right. is not a doesn't fill that niche.
2: No, and and I remember the first you know brushes I had with it, and everyone was saying, just use GraphQL, and then I realized I had to write all the resolvers. Yeah, and so exactly. really, what you're saying is just write your data access layer twice, which is not a. Uh, benefit to the backend team. <laughs> that's, a, that's a no. I mean downside.
0: GraphQL does some really interesting things, especially when you look at you know network constrained situations where you can say, okay, with GraphQL, I can c- resolve all of my stuff within my fast network, uh, you know, inside of my cloud, and only send you the minimum possible that you need over the slow network. That's pretty cool. That that's really powerful for mobile. That's really powerful for web in bandwidth or latency constrained situations. Totally. Um, but yeah, it it's not a backend solution. It's
2: no, and, and and also the client side resolving subscription thing is still a little bit janky. Feels a little bit weird. Mutations still feel a little bit weird. So I, I think there's work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done in this in this world, especially now that data is cheap. And the clients are getting more powerful and they're staying on longer and they've got local storage and there was this project PouchDB back in the day that did a a lot of awesome syncing with uh, CouchDB instances. Felt like we were getting close to some answers in how we would do these peer-to-peer apps that way, but it recently feels like we sort of stopped the conversation at at GraphQL. It hasn't really matured that much and uh, it's because it's a tough problem.
0: Yeah, well, and we keep trying to push readable data out as far as we can to the edge, right? Get as much as possible out, you know, distributed on CDNs so that you don't have to do a bunch of network hops or anything like that to get it. Uh, That doesn't really work very well for mutatable data. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I I have no answers for this. (laughs) No idea, I mean, we've been playing with uh, doing our own sort of uh, subscription stuff with um, API gateways, uh, WebSockets, it's definitely uh, wild west right now, and there's no good answers. What I do like are, are patterns like Redux and um, having a single state atom and being able to update that dynamically and have my tree re-render in a way that I somewhat expect it to re-render. All that seems like we've, we've like that feels like we've done a good job. We figured that part out, but we just. I still don't know about the transport. I still don't really know about the query language. And I still don't really know about the persistence part. Those are, those are big, open questions. Sorry, I don't have any answers. That's no, that's OK. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't either.
0: Otherwise, I wouldn't be asking you, right? Yeah. But, um, yeah, it is interesting. So one of the things that strikes me about what you just mentioned is the part that feels right to you is that we've moved to this state-driven declarative approach. Yeah. the UI. And actually, that was one thing that I, I didn't mention earlier, but I noticed about Architect when I looked at it, is it looked like essentially declarative infrastructure management, where Very you're saying, much this so. is what I want, make it happen.
2: Yes, yes, that's important to me. And, and there's a little bit of debate about this in the serverless community right now. So, what everyone can agree on is CloudFormation is uh, verbose and complex and brittle. And some of that is downstream of the fact that it's often written in YAML, and you know, so if you have a really large YAML document that's deeply nested and you miss one space, it's still going to be valid YAML, but it's not going to be valid CloudFormation, and you're going to have a bad day. So did I mention I've been using Kubernetes a lot? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> so yeah,
2: same problems. So it's it's a bit brittle, and and brittle is the same as broken, and broken is the same as slow, and and that that's tough. So architect, um, we we defined our own manifest format, dot uh, file which you can read about on the website. It's extremely terse, and it discourages both syntax and nesting. And we generate CloudFormation from that, so we know we always have good CloudFormation document on the other side. And that's good, and that's working well for us. Um, recently, there's, there was a startup called Pulumi, uh, which I definitely recommend people check out. And they took infrastructure as code more literally, and they said, what if we wrote the infrastructure in an imperative programming language of our choice? And it generated CloudFormation documents. Amazon. Sounds like Chef 2.0 or whatever, right? Like or yeah. Puppet or, or the Ansible, SaltSec.
0: Yeah, it, a little now, bit. I, I will say, Kubernetes is a step up from those because <laughs> Kubernetes, while it's YAML and it's ugly, it is declarative, and it yeah, that is really nice.
2: It's deterministic. It's it's statically analyzable. It's it's easier to test and and know if you got something wrong before you before you deploy, which is a good time to know. Um, So the Pulumi way um, obviously got people at Amazon excited because they immediately cloned it, like they do. (laughs) They created a thing called CDK, um, which I guess stands for Code Development Kit. The CDK lets you write in TypeScript, Python, and probably other languages, but those are the ones that people would be most interested in. And uh, you run a a command called synthesize and it'll turn your imperative TypeScript code or your Python code into a CloudFormation document. What's good? So I only have one use case for this, and that use case is I need hundred queues. Right. I don't want to write, you know, Q one, Q two, Q three. That's a pain in the ass. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, no, but otherwise, introducing state into the declarative manifest feels a lot like embedding Bash in YAML scripts. You know, like <laughs> when we used to, we we did that a lot back in the day because we had to, and it always felt bad, and it always burned us, and we always knew it was wrong. And I sort of feel like these imperative solutions are, are taking that path. And the reason people are adopting them is because they get all of the tools they get with their imperative language. It's nice to have TypeScript at your back when you're typing out a large object hierarchy, for code completing for you, which you don't get out of our YAML files. Architect solves this by being terse, so it's just like an extremely readable, writable format. 10 lines turns into, like, hundreds of thousands of lines of YAML, you know, kind of thing. Not quite, but, like, seems that way. And, um, yeah, I think that's why the imperative things become popular, because the tooling's so good. And I feel like it's going to kick off a generation of people realizing why declarative is good again. (laughs) So sort of waiting to just let that story play out. (laughs)
1: We deserve a better internet, and the Brave team has the recipe for bringing it to us. Start with Google Chrome. Keep the extensions, the dev tools, and the rendering engine that make Chrome great. Rip out the Google bits, we don't need them. Mix in ad and tracker blocking by default quick access to the Tor network for true private browsing and an opt-in reward system so you can get paid to view privacy-respecting ads, then turn around and use those rewards to support your favorite web creators like us. Download Brave today using the link in the show notes and give tipping a try on changelog.com.
0: In so many ways, it sounds like the... uh, the argument that's played out at least three times in the front-end world between, like, do everything in JavaScript. No, it's actually valuable to have templates and markup and CSS. And, like, oh, but with JavaScript, you have the power of an imperative language. Yes, and
2: that power will hurt you. Yeah. And configuration management is almost more dangerous. So we like to talk about how code's a liability, which it definitely is. So you want to minimize it. Less code to do the same job, less surface area for problems. Pretty simple. Why we want to keep our depth trees small. Configuration is also a liability. It's a runtime dependency. And if you have lots of it, it's brittle and dangerous because you can automate destruction. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like you can you can literally like say wipe out fleets of databases or whatever. And yes. uh, that's, that's <laughs> that is true. extremely powerful but extremely dangerous too. I think the answer is uh, do what's feeling right for your team and and try and do as little of it as possible. I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer here. Uh, You know, some teams prefer OO style and they get good mileage out of that. They like to be encrusted in tools and code completion and and that's fine. Some people prefer more functional style, which is separating your data from the things that act on it and um, having pure functions and and I think that declarative style is also good. You know, needs less tools, usually is more terse, requires uh, digging deeper and understanding what that code's doing because there's less information hiding going on. And it's not really an either or. It's really a, where are you comfortable and, and what do you want to do with your team? Makes sense. That's, that's the safe answer. <laughs> I, mean, I I prefer declarative stuff myself. You could take yeah.
0: a strong opinion, but yeah. no. I mean, it, it's very true. I mean. You do what's working for you. The, at the end of the day, what matters, you ship something that works.
2: That's right. Yes. Uh, your
0: customers don't care. I mean, you could be writing Fortran. And yeah. And if you're writing Fortran to generate web apps right now, I'm shocked, but I'm impressed. <laughs> and, and your customers somebody's doing don't it.
2: Somebody care. is generating JavaScript from Fortran right now. I guarantee it. It's, I know. It's <laughs> probably <laughs> happening. Uh, or COBOL or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but end of the day,
0: if you're productive... And your customer gets what they need. Who, who cares? I, yeah, I, totally I wouldn't agree. want to work on it, but <laughs> I don't have to. You're the one working on it.
2: And that does become an issue, right, for hiring and stuff, and 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 perception. Like, you know, I've, I've noticed that people like apologize for PHP, but it, as it happened today on stage at, at this conference, and I was like, you know, what's to apologize about? All the top websites in the world are running PHP right now, but. Uh, yeah, and it's almost gatekeeper. I don't think Google
0: uses PHP. Aren't they? Google, they're a C plus plus and Python
2: shop. Yeah, right? like, well, they, I, I, they love their Java too. They do know. love their Java. <laughs> yeah, there's which, no accounting for taste. But <laughs> 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 oh, now I'm now I'm being the gatekeeper. I was just going to say I shouldn't be, but the, I think it, I think you know Craigslist PHP, WordPress, Slack. Uh, oh, yeah, no, that, that Facebook thing. Which, if it's going to be around much longer, who knows? <laughs> Uh, No, I mean,
0: yeah. If it gets the job done, it gets the job done. And we get to choose what we work on. And if you're listening to this podcast, I'm betting you probably work in JavaScript. So... Yeah. We can make fun (laughs) of Java all we like. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sure a bunch of folks use Java as well. And it is a powerful language. I mean, all of these. They're powerful languages. The Java ecosystem is incredible. Oh, yeah.
2: and these things are coming together. Um, you know, I remember when I was writing Java, there was no, no way, no how ever gonna be a concept of a lambda inside that language. And yet today, uh, here we are, Java has lambdas, JavaScript has classes, the world didn't end. <laughs> we can do both these things in either way, or we can just like rely on their ecosystems. The JVM ecosystem is amazing, huge, and powerful, and you don't need to write Java to access it. You can write Clojure, or, Uh, Kotlin seems to be quite popular right now in the Android community and I'm certain that uh, I'm certain there's good reasons to use it I wonder if
0: anyone has tried compiling the JVM onto WebAssembly yet Oh my
2: god (laughs) I did hear that someone was working on compiling a Flash player into WebAssembly and I felt my hair literally fall out (laughs) The JVM in the browser that's how much memory does that thing take? I mean, yeah. <laughs> it can't be any more than Slack.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that that would open some interesting doors, right? Because suddenly, all these people who've been living in the JVM ecosystem because they can access anything can run all that stuff in the browser.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's it. That is interesting. I mean, I cl- it's definitely possible. I know Clojure has Clojure script, and Clojure also runs in the JVM. Yeah, there, I think, ways I think that's
0: that's. Different because I think their compiled Closure Script is a compiled JavaScript language. It is, yeah, right? which is different. I'm just saying, like, JVM is a runtime.
2: Literally compile that into the. Literally
0: compile the runtime to be running on WebAssembly. So you're you're doing. I mean, it would probably be slow because you're doing a runtime on top of a runtime, and you're, how many levels of virtualization can you get? But
2: it's turtles all the way down. I mean, you <laughs> know, in, in a way. In a way, more of a, its more of a social engineering uh, thing. But in a way, this is what TypeScript is. <laughs> in a way, in a way. You know? Okay, say more. <laughs> well, it, it's a classy uh, typed thing. You know, that's what—that's what that is. It's—it's uh, it's in the Java heritage. It's um, kind of. I mean, I feel like
0: TypeScript—they approached classes from a very web-friendly, like taking into account the legacy of javascript yes. in a way that, like classes in typescript don't make me scream in agony the way that <laughs> classes in java do
2: yeah no that's that's true and you don't ha- you're not sort of forced to implement every version of an error or
0: i mean i think whatever. i actually i resisted typescript and related typed languages for a long time because the first programming language i ever uh well, the first language I took in college was Java, which yeah. is why I did not study computer science in college because I went to this intro CS course in Java and it was terrible. Yep. Um, which, once again, if you like Java, no offense. <laughs> uh, different minds work in different ways, uh, but for me, it was terrible. Um, and so for a long time, I just tried to stay away from. I like. I liked. I was in the Ruby world. I loved Python. I like. You know. I don't yeah. mind some amount of types, but like duck typing or casual or what have you. Um, but. Modern languages with types are actually not like Java. Like no, totally. TypeScript is awesome, Go is awesome, yep. um, you know, and they're fully typed.
2: Yeah, and I think it's like a difference in uh, the, the programming style a little bit too. Where it drew me in was uh, the docs, the TS doc. Mm-hmm. Um, having uh, that declaration at the top of a file, it tells me what the hell <laughs> person is. <laughs> It's yep. useful. Like yep. that's extremely useful. I'm not hunting in the code looking to figure out you know what the properties on that object are. It's almost more like schemas, and um, yeah, I, I quite like it for those reasons. I think the I think the vibe of it though is is similar in that you know you get you get the the same stories that you heard with Java, like uh, you get tooling, the code completion, and you get static analysis, and therefore it's conceptually faster. And, And those are those are benefits that you know Java pioneered, and Microsoft copied with C Sharp, and again with TypeScript. Yeah.
0: Fair enough. I don't know. I got to get Nick (laughs) Nisi on this. this He's going to be very very dramatic. Nick is a TypeScript fiend, so he would be uh, going hard. I'm I'm a TypeScript dabbler. I still do most of my front end stuff with vanilla JavaScript.
2: Yeah, and I'm not saying one way is necessarily good or bad. And speaking to more my own subjective thing with it. Uh, we use it. Uh, we use it mostly for ts-doc and for, for documenting our um, our function payloads, and yeah. uh, it's been great for that. You know. Well, and
0: one really nice thing about the way they did TypeScript is you can progressively adopt it, right? Yeah. You don't have to use all the things. You don't have to implement all
2: the things yeah. to have it
0: work, right? You, Which,
2: that was the problem with Java. We're forcing you to implement errors to satisfy its compiler cool anything else you want to talk about while we're on i can't think of anything um i guess i should plug begin try out begin.com. uh yeah. try out uh if you find a bug hassle me on twitter i'm i'm a chill person i'm not mad if there's an issue in fact i'd prefer it if you did tell me <laughs> and uh
0: but be kind we always yeah. emphasize be kind yeah tell him the issues there but be like Sorry to bother you <laughs> No,
2: no, no, no You, you, can, you can yell at me uh, i got <laughs> thick skin But uh, yeah, we should try and be nice to each other for sure I did have a friend a while ago tell me that they had tried out ARC But they found a bug And they didn't want to say anything And I was like, no
0: I don't think oh, that's no, actually yeah. the worst thing Yeah, don't, don't find a bug and then don't say anything and just go away Find a bug, file a bug report And it will get
2: fixed Please, yeah
1: Yeah yeah
0: sounds good awesome thank I, you
1: Brian well, thanks for having me and thank you for listening to this episode of JS Party we appreciate your time and your attention special thanks to Brian LaRue for sharing his wisdom and the awesome folks at Jamstack.com for having us out this episode was hosted by KBall did you know he has a great weekly newsletter check it out at zendev.com your producer was me Jared Santo and our beats are farm fresh we get them from BMC we're brought to you by awesome sponsors. Support them. They support us. Thanks to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar for helping us do what we do. If you aren't receiving our free email every Sunday, you're missing out. It's our take on this week in the world of software, what's interesting and why. Head to changelog.com slash weekly to subscribe. It'll cost you the same price as a free jar jam. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you next week.